Huh? Yeah, whenever you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone, I'm Kevin Wolf. And I'm David Oro, and you're listening to The Umbargo, the greatest PR podcast of all time. Damn straight. Whenever we get around to it. Which is usually every other week. We're going to talk about news, politics, sports, pop culture, business, whatever we want. All of it from the point of view of public relations and communication. We are all about punching stodgy PR in the face. That's right. So sit back, strap in, and let's get it on. Today is Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm feeling really good, Kevin. It's sunny still in California. It's rained all year. I haven't worn my mask in like three days. No. It's like a jungle. So that's I a good went, thing. I went, a going I went to a restaurant yesterday and didn't wear the mask. It's like a sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from Right. Going so, under. you know, I went into a, a place for lunch and they still had the sign on the door that said, wear the mask, but nobody inside was wearing the mask, <laughs> which, you know, was just fine by me. I went to my kid's baseball game the other day. Nobody's wearing a mask. Of course, we were outside, which makes a lot of sense. But I don't know, Dave. I, I, it's like, I don't want to. I don't want to jinx it. Like normal, kind of normal-ish. I think that's the best we can get right now. Normal-ish. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's going to be just part of our lives. I think, and we'll we'll move forward with it. I I, I think I'll still wear one on a plane or someplace crowded, just because. Isn't that crazy? Been, Two I'm years sit- ago, you never would have done that. I would have been yeah. like, hey, "Get it? What are you talking about wearing a mask?" But <laughs> our lives have changed. I, I it's actually, I'll tell you what. You know, not to be a downer or anything, but like I do notice that my kids, my younger kids. I tell them like, you don't need to wear the mask anymore. Like at school, they made a decision outside and in, in the classrooms they are still, they still got to wear it for the next whatever. But outside they said, my kids, they're like, ah, I think I'll just keep it on. Like they're, they're conditioned, which kind of bums me out to be honest with you. Cause I, I don't want my kids to, you know, to run around scared or to have to wear a mask and makes it harder or uncomfortable. Or, you know, I, I think it's a, um, you know, your kids end up kind of hiding behind it to yeah, some extent. Dude. I don't know. I came into this whole thing super happy, and you're going to be Debbie Downey. I know, no, I'm not actually. No, I'm going to be happy too. Masks are <laughs> off. The sun is shining. Uh, you know, I I couldn't. I, I'm busy as all get out, but I, I feel good, man. Everybody's. Uh, I'm I'm in a good place. Well, 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 that's great, Kevin. <laughs> there we go. We're back on there a positive note. Back on our track. There so we go. today, today we're on a roll this this month. Uh, no. We actually have another guest this week, and I'm excited to have him. Um, he is somebody that has crossed my world, and but until recently, we just met. I think it was just a few months ago. Before I introduce him, uh, you know, I knew him. I had heard his name for years when we were youngins, and mm. then uh, I moved to Napa, and then his name started popping up everywhere. You know, I'm in local politics around here, but then he was also his name came up at my kid's school. And then he was like, he had like a little radio show. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, we got a celebrity. Is? You're saying yeah, we have a celebrity. Yeah, yeah. Then, then he was like, then he it's showed our up first next. celebrity, maybe. Yeah. So okay. I, I finally reached out to him. His name is uh, Larry Kamer. He's the principal partner at the Kamer Consulting Group. And Larry does things that we don't do, Kevin. Mm. He works, um, I, I want to call it crisis communications and reputation management. I'm going to let him explain for himself what he does. Larry, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. How are you? <laughs> Doing all, all right. right. Thanks. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for making time. Thanks oh, for I've being been, here. I've been looking yeah. forward to it. I've been looking forward to Larry, it. Larry, our, our guests can't see, but what, what's that hat you're wearing? What, what's 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 on that hat right there? Uh, this is a hat from the Sea Ranch Golf Links. 
Oh, is, that, that's up a, in, is that in Napa? Up in Sonoma no, County. Sonoma County. On the wild yeah. Sonoma coast, right at the very end of Sonoma County near uh, Mendocino County. So are, are you a golfer? Uh, bad. I am the worst combination of, of things you want in a golfer. I'm not very good, but I enjoy it. <laughs> you know, it, I don't know if it's helping the reputation of PR people. I think most most everyone thinks that PR people spend their time on golf courses, right? Yes. You know, that, that's, is that, I don't know if, if, if that's, uh, it's, uh, you know, honestly, I'm the same kind of golfer as you are, uh, shitty, but I, I enjoy the heck out of it. So I guess we're, uh, we're both not helping the reputation of, uh, of PR people. Well, I, you know, I think we're, I think we're right in the core demographic. You know, I think most golfers are just like us, right. Oh, you know, yeah. not just perfectly mediocre, but get out there and, play the game and buy the beers and hopefully nobody right. gets hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Larry, tell us about yourself. What are you doing? What, what kind of work do you do? Well, um, thanks for having me on you guys. Uh, what do I do? So I'm a, you know, I'm a strategic communications person. Uh, I uh, have been doing this for a long time uh, since uh, my political days ended, uh, I, you know, I, I used to work in, in local government and politics. Uh, first, when I was in Chicago, which is where I went to college and where I met my wife. And then in California for a little while, I ran uh, political campaigns. And uh, that was kind of fun. But as I got a little older, I didn't really want to start chasing campaigns all over the country, which is what you kind of have to do. Uh, we were very interested in like having a family and having a normal life. So um, I went into uh, this racket, the public affairs business, and, um, you know, started off working with utility companies, cable TV, um, phone. You know, that was really where I got started. I was a lobbyist up in Sacramento. I covered a couple of other states. And then I decided I wanted to, uh, you know, I just... Uh, Owning small businesses and being self-employed is a, um, it, it comes down on both sides of my family. So I, I kind of, you know, couldn't resist that urge. And so in the uh, mid, excuse me, about 1987, I hung out a shingle and have been working in various permutations uh, ever since. That's a, that's a pretty good run. I, I have a question for you. Did you ever see the movie, Thank You for Smoking? Oh, I loved it. And I love the book too. Yeah, I didn't even know it was a book. Okay, that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And, you know, without, you know, spoiling the plot for anyone, even though the movie's been out for 20 years, it's basically about a lobbyist who works for the tobacco industry. So my question to you is, is working as a lobbyist for the tobacco industry like working as a lobbyist for a telecommunications company or a utility? Nah, no. Um, you know, the you remember there were it was about three lobbyists in, in thank yeah. you for yeah, yeah, alcohol, right? tobacco, and firearms, exactly. Right. And they yeah. called themselves the mod squad, right? That's the right. Mer the merchants of death. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Listen, I mean, it's when you're when you are working in the in the lobbying world, it's the same as working in the PR world. You know, some people are gonna want to use your services who you do not want to work with. It it has not happened to me very often. Um because usually, you know, people come to us, they've got an issue, they got a problem, and we think we can help them. I have been approached in the past by tobacco, uh, I, and have said no. I have been approached in the past by uh, firearms, I've said no. But on the other hand, I've worked for, you know, for Chevron, and I've worked for 
uh, Southern California gas company, you know, big utility company. Is that a fine line? I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, yeah. everybody's got to make their the personal decisions, but I mean, I don't know. Is there a difference between working for big oil and big tobacco? That is a very legitimate question. And I think it comes down to your, you know, your personal sense of, you know, of ethics and what it is they're trying to get done. You know, a lot of the work I did with Chevron was help them get better at oil spill uh, prevention right. and oil spill cleanup, you know, which I think is a really important thing. You bet. Um, it's hard for me just personally. I mean, I'm not judging anybody else, but it, you know, it's just hard for me to find an issue with firearms, for example, that, that, you know, where I think I could be of any, of any help on tobacco. What's interesting is my dad was in the cigarette business. Hmm. My dad, my, you know, cigarettes. Like a distributor always, or was he the Marlboro man? Yeah. He, um, you remember, uh, vending machines. I mean, yeah. I'm assuming, right. They're, they're pretty <laughs> yeah. much illegal now, cigarette vending machines, but that was his business. Wow. And, um, you know, so, tobacco, you know, put me through college. There you go. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can't, I can't make too many judgments. I've never smoked cigarettes. I don't particularly like them, but you know, I'm also not as judgy about that stuff. I think yeah. as a lot of people. They, they, I got a question for you. So there's a trend, particularly in the tech industry, you know, Kevin and I have a tech background and I, this intersection of uh, politics and corporate communications. So there's been people coming out of the White House taking jobs as the head of comms in certain places. And I, I, the names are blanking me right now, but Uber grabbed one. And I think Facebook grabbed a couple. Right? Airbnb. Yeah. Airbnb. Um, and I find it fascinating. And, and, I, and I've only had this insight because of me being in local politics, right? Because everything in politics is about messaging and telling the story. Um, can you tell me, talk to us about, you know, your political campaigns and how that's helped you in, in uh, public affairs and then how that translates for any sort of communications professional. The thing I always liked about political campaigns is, you know, there are very few places where you can work with a like-minded group of people kind of in common cause in a high stakes uh environment where nothing, you know, nothing's guaranteed. You, you know, uh, at least you used to be able to have a lot of fun, you know, a lot of fun doing campaign work. Um, very social, you know, um, and so, but what do you learn from that? Well, you learn, you learn the art of messaging and you learn how to do it fast and you learn how to be responsive. You learn the role of media as the kind of interlocutor between you and the people you're getting to. Uh, you see what paid media advertising and, and, uh, and the like can do and what it can't do. So, and, and you combine that with the fact that I think corporate America, and this is certainly true in the tech world, has always been enamored with politics. You know, if you want to sell something in, if you want to sell a program in, just say, I want to run this like a campaign. And everybody in the room is going to look over to you and say, tell me more. Right. So if you happen to come out of that world, uh, you know, it's assumed you really know what you're talking about. And maybe some of my regulatory problems with Facebook, if I'm Facebook, uh, would benefit from a so-called campaign approach. And I think that that accounts for a lot of it. 
Mm. Yeah, Facebook, uh, you know, or Meta, I guess, is uh, there were some announcements around their public affairs work in the news yesterday, I think, like a complete reorg of that operation, um, you know, trying to, I don't know, put a put a better, uh, a better spin on, you know, the metaverse, which uh, I'm going to pass on for now. But I had a question for you about um, the relationship between, uh, you know, kind of public affairs and comms people uh, working on campaigns in the media. So I'm, I'm a big uh, um, Hunter Thompson guy and uh, you know, he's famous for being on the campaign trail and, you know, covering uh, Nixon and, and Johnson and um, you know, sixties politics. And, and he talks a lot about uh, you know, the work that he did and the relationships he built with comms people, with people on the campaign, people in support of the campaign. And, you know, it, it actually, it, it, kind of one of the things that makes this industry, the, the communications industry, PR industry kind of attractive to me. It was this, it was kind of like, um, I, I don't know, it was, it was like, a, it was, it was social. It was, um, you know, like you, you kind of like, you, you kind of um, connecting with the, it, it wasn't so adversarial, I guess is where I'm driving. Like it was more like the, the word's escaping me, but like, you know, we're going to, we're kind of all in this together. We're, we're, I'm trying to tell a story and you're trying to pitch a story, but we're, we're still going to kind of like figure it out together. Is that, was that, is that the case in your experience? And, and how is that, how would you say it's different than kind of like uh, maybe a more uh, corporate type uh, relationship between comms and, and, uh, and companies? It's a great question. I mean, I think the, so a couple of observations, I think, you know, the first thing is that I think PR is like every other sector in society, right? I mean, just as, you know, people have gotten a lot more hard, you know, hardened in their positions and bitter and distrusting. My guess is, you know, that that certainly affected a PR person's job, but it might well affect the way, you know, it feels, you know, in the office or working on teams. One of the things I always liked about politics, and I, and I imagine David would echo this, is that you do have that collegial sense and you know, if you're working in places where there's two parties, um, you know, like in Illinois, where I used to work in California, at least years ago, um, you know, you go out, you do battle, and then you go have a drink. You have a beer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, as a friend of mine once said, when I, when I got into this business, you know, and I was overthinking something, he said, hey, Larry, it's PR. It's not the ER. <laughs> that's good you know this is not like this is not life and death work we're doing here so i'm, I'm gonna steal that actually i, I stole it now. so you should steal it yeah, yeah. thank you um, yeah so go ahead yeah go ahead. yeah no i was just saying that yeah it, it's different like for me on the on the local politics side you know one of the things i learned for, for most of my career was like i was selling something else a company a product a service and when I started campaigning, I was selling me. And, you know, the, the only time I had ever done that before was through in, during a job interview, right? Yeah. And campaigning is the longest freaking job interview anybody could ever do. And you interview with hundreds of people. <laughs> and then not only that, you got to go on stage and do a debate. And then it's like, oh, you have to do an event, several events to actually be on this job interview and um it 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 helped me think through 
and it's something I'm taking with clients, a lot of this, you know, not only what I could bring to the table, but what is the bigger picture for the community, for uh, the constituents and understanding what needs to be done. And so you turn that into a conversation with the client. Okay, that's a cool product and feature and you're awesome, just like David Oro. And, you know, then, but what does it mean for the industry? What does it mean for this or that? And how can you really affect change? That's, I, I find clients resonate with that. And it's probably a PR 101 thing, but it really hit home as soon as I got into politics. So, yeah. Yeah, the thing about politics, you know, that I think a lot of marketing people are baffled by is, you know, you got a year and a half campaign for a one day sale. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, all that and it's done. It's over. It's over in a matter of hours. Well, that's um, true. Right. But but then, you know, it, it seems like especially these days, right, once you're elected, you, you've got to go right back to campaigning. Yeah. Because okay. especially, you know, if we found out here in California, you know, that job you've got today might not be that job you have tomorrow if you're uh if you're Governor Newsom, you know, at the end of last year. So I, I mean I think it's actually you know, it's, it's a, it's campaigning, I guess, is probably just a full-time job now, even though, you know, you might not technically be up for re-election, uh, you know, for another couple of years. Yeah. But I, I do think it's, you know, like just staying on the topic of, of, uh, of politics and campaigning and communication, like the, the job of the, uh, the, the local or the, the local or, you know, state or, or national um, politician these days is, you know, like it's it's really all about um, reputation, and it's really all I mean, all about positioning and messaging, and and it seems like you know not nearly. I mean, I'm sure they spend a lot of time on legislating too, but it feels like you know they've got to be careful what they say, what they do at all times. Um, you know, the spotlight's always on them. You know, obviously some really good examples here in California recently with the. Uh, the mayor of Los Angeles and Newsom at the uh, football games in Los Angeles with their masks dropped or, you know, the, uh, the, obviously the incident here in California uh, last year with uh, Newsom at the, at the restaurant in your neck of the woods, right. At, uh, in Napa where he, you know, had, had a gathering. So, I mean, like, what, what do you think, I mean, what kind of, what kind of challenges do, comms people face? Like what, what are the, what's their day-to-day like if you're working for the Newsom uh, team, the, the comms team, or you're working for, you know, uh, the Garcetti team in Los Angeles. What what are you what are you thinking about every day? Like, what's your what's your strategy? Or you kind of just at a high level. What what would you what what are the, what are these guys working on? Three words: the next election. Hmm. So it is right. all about the campaign, right? It's it, it is all about well, Kevin, getting Kevin, elected, staying elected. You know, we've given a lot of PR pro tips here, and we're always going to give them away. But I'm going to give you a campaign tip. Oh. It's called A B C. Always be campaigning. I thought it was always be closing. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, it's a variant of the same same idea. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, yeah, well, I guess it's got to be right. But things, right? So is that so? Always, it, it's the next campaign, right? So so is that? I mean, you, you know, you obviously have to tackle you know one issue after the other, and you have to comment on everything that's happening in the news that that pertains to your community or your state so, or whatever it is. But like, how does how do you tie that all together from a from a comms you know from a kind of a bigger picture comms perspective? So like, I mean, and how do you figure that out? And it just seems like such a you know a uh, 
a, a, a pickle, like a, a massive well, challenge? What's, what's your, how do you, how do you approach something like that? Two thoughts. I mean, the, the first is you can get very cynical about this idea that you're always looking at the next election. Um, I, I don't think we should be quite so cynical because what it says is that people in public service want to stay in public service. Yeah. Elections are, they're the price of admission. And, you know, I've never felt that there's anything inherently, you know, uh, you know, scummy about the campaign process. It's what, you know, I came into it and my early experiences were a lot of fun and very meaningful. And I worked for people I really cared about and issues I really cared about. And more often than not, we won. And that's more fun than losing. Um, but, you know, I also think that, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine just a couple hours ago about this. You know, we're talking about the irony of the Democrats holding all three branches of government in Washington and looking pretty likely like we're going to lose the Congress in, yeah. you know, in, in, you know, in the next election. And, and my friend who is a, you know, a kind of what you used to call a moderate Republican, right. You know, hate, it hates Trump, uh, but still would call himself, you know, a, a low tax anti-government kind of guy yep. says, you know, McConnell and the Republicans have discipline. They have the one yep. thing that that Democrats are lacking. You know, they say radical, you know, you know, radical progressive agenda or radical liberal agenda enough. People are going to believe it, it. sticks. Yeah, it, it sticks. sticks. And it's yeah, not- no, I, I think their calm strategy, they're, they're, you know, they've been far more effective than Democrats over the past two years, uh, or, you know, I guess it'd be, you know, two years coming in November. It, it seems like they've outmaneuvered Democrats at every turn from a comms perspective. And from the minority, which is not exactly easy to do. Yeah, I, I, you know, Kevin, back to your point about the day-to-day, right? And so I've, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has come to American Canyon several times and he's held press conferences here. And uh, it, it's the media relations or the comms person is there with them all the time, straight up doing media relations, doing day-to-day. Governor Gavin Newsom sent out a a note to the people, the pool reporters that cover him and say, we're going to be in American Canyon talk. In this case that he came out here, uh, it was talking about the public service power shut shut downs that happened during the high wind events. And, you know, there were some seniors getting their powers taken away. And then, you know, they got like basically life-saving equipment in their mobile home park. Not cool, PG&E. And that's what he's, but it, it was there. And the daily operation for that comms person is to get them there. Obviously, in between those press conferences is working with the governor on messaging. But as an elected, I think you try to stay because you're moving so quickly and you're doing this all the time. You you need to be able to manage the delivery of those messages all the time. It gets a little bit easier, I think. But when something new and weird pops up, that's where all haywire goes loose. And I think to my earlier question earlier, that's why Washington comms people are getting hired by tech firms because they can handle multiple, they they know that they've been thrown in the fire handling multiple things. Some of the issues that are coming around Uber and Google and stuff is just ugly, right? You know, that's the thing, right? I mean, that's why you're getting attacked from all sides. How do you handle that? Because well, I handled it because I was in the White House. Right. Well, and that's the thing, right? And and these are the issues that these companies, these big tech companies are dealing with are not traditional tech issues, right? This isn't a customer service problem. This isn't a, you know, my service is down, my package didn't arrive, 
you know, my product doesn't work. They're dealing with, you know, issues of security, issues of privacy, um, issues of harassment, is, you know, I mean, there's well, all, you know, th- it's just a b- much broader scope. And, and that's why you need somebody with, you know, expertise handling these big picture issues uh, to, to step in and help on the comm side. Well, and, and look, a lot of times this is a, this is a kind of a vicious cycle, right? I mean, these are problems of their own making sometimes, sure. you know, especially if you look at, you know, whether it's Uber, Airbnb, you know, these companies who basically just start offering their services and offering their business, even if the laws haven't, you know, haven't allowed it, even if you know, the laws are behind and the approach is, you know, we've uncovered such a rich vein of business that, you know, we can afford to do it this way and we'll ask for forgiveness later on. Right. That's, that's what's happened with Uber in a lot, you know, in a lot of markets where, you know, okay, you want to disrupt the taxi cab industry, fine, but the taxi cab industry is regulated and you're not. So there's also pressure, of course, internally, right. You've got pressure from employees these days. that didn't exist in terms of like, What's this company doing uh, from a diversity standpoint? Even you know? more. Yeah, I think it goes even deeper than that. And, and I actually look at this quite a lot in, in, in my work is, is that it becomes an employee morale, recruitment and retention issue. And, you know, in, in, and you guys know this better than most, but, you know, in the world of tech, it's so competitive for talent. So it's expensive to get people to get the right people. And keeping them is a lot cheaper than getting, you know, getting a new one, right? And, and a lot less time consuming. So what do employees expect? What do employees like my kids age expect? Well, they expect these companies to stand for something, right? You know, they expect them to be kind of like a community or, or to want to invest in them. You know, yeah. that it's not just about shareholder return. Um, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, kind of product centric companies being, you know, expected to comment on social issues, yeah. um, things they weren't, you know, are, are, are way, you know, way beyond what they ever expected to be dealing with, but uh, it's at their doorstep and there's nothing they can do about it. Well, that's right. And there's no way, it used to be a very safe strategy to run and hide, you know, to say, well, we're a company, we don't get involved in, right, right. you know, gun violence, or we that's don't get involved in voter rights. That yeah. is not an option. And there's, you know, when you see companies like Nike and Levi's and, and Salesforce and others, you know, taking pretty big, bold steps on things that you would never expect a publicly traded company to do. Um, it does set an example and it does set a tone, I think. Well, let's talk about the strategy. Sorry, Dave, just, just you know, thinking strategically about uh, comms for a, a big tech company. So, I mean, what, what advice do you have for, you know, let's say I'm uh, I don't know, a mid-level PR person working for a big tech company, and I'm trying to help my company figure out what our strategy is for dealing with stuff that we don't know uh, is coming or, you know, that we, we kind of, uh, you know, kind of high level political, social, uh, environmental, uh, security type issues. Like what, what should I, we're all about providing tips to people here on the show, like giving them advice and helping them out. Like what should they be thinking about? Um, if you're getting into the world of, of difficult issues or crises, you know, the thing that I would say is don't fall into the trap of thinking that it has, that you're going to be the first, no tough issue, no crisis that, that comes across the horizon, uh, ever comes across the horizon for the first time. It's always happened to somebody before, and you have no excuse 
given all the technology, all the ability to research, all the knowledge, all the educational programs, you have no excuse not to be ready for, for whatever the world is going to throw at you. And, you know, I mean, look, one of the things that, that's intimidating when, when people start thinking about how am I going to get my arms around crisis kinds of situations is um, where do I start? And you start where you're going to be most likely to face a problem and where that problem is going to be most likely to hurt you the most. Hmm. Right. So I imagine, uh, you know, like, don't look up. I imagine a meteor could strike the earth and wipe us all out. I don't know that I'm going to spend a whole lot of time writing crisis plans around that. Right. Right. <laughs> Because you're just going to be a lot more interested in like cybercrime. Yeah, or but but to your violence. point, like there there are a host of issues that you probably ought to be thinking about that yes. are you know probably a little more likely than the meteor. And then you need to do your homework. It sounds like what you're saying. You need to do your research. You need to figure out. Well, shit. Like it, 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 we're it's probably not we're not we're probably not the only people that are thinking about this or have been through this or might be have might be going through this. Let's find out what other people are doing. Let's come up with some best practices around dealing with that stuff from a commerce perspective um, and uh, and get ourselves get ourselves prepared. Right. Or at least better prepared than we are now. Right. And, and, go ahead, Larry. All I was going to, I was just going to finish the thought and just say that, um, you know, the expectations of various stakeholders, whether they're investors or employees are very, very high that your management is going to be competent enough to handle what the world throws at you, even if it's really, really tough. And I think they're going to be pretty unforgiving if you haven't prepared. You know, yeah, it, I've worked in a, several places and it, it takes a crisis to be prepared. Yeah. Right. Nobody's, you know, particularly at startups or heck, even mid sized firms. It's like this is going down. It's either a, a customer matter or like I was working at one company and, um, you know, it was uh, there was an racial issue about hire, uh, firing of an employee. Like nobody was prepared for it, right? And then it kind of did not happen. It was a nothing burger, but comms got brought in. But then afterwards, we knew this could happen again, and nobody did anything, right? Right. <laughs> I was told to go do something else, and this and that. Larry, do you see a lot of that? What do you say to companies that you know are almost like ignoring the problem? Well, or, I. I you know, you say that, you know, if, if you have a serious chest pain, you know, you don't pretend it didn't happen and go about your life and don't change your diet and don't change your, you know, your, your habits, you go see the doctor and, and you do what you got to do to make sure that that chest pain doesn't turn into a heart attack. Right. And so you're right, David, there are lots and lots of warning signs and yellow flags and even red flags that come up. And you know, yes, it's especially true in the tech world and the startup world where you get a bunch of people who say, look, we are so smart. You know, we know more than anybody else. We've got this rocket ship of an idea. We've got money behind us. We've got all these great people. You know, they've probably succeeded, you know, once or twice at other stuff in their lives. So they say, you know, so the thinking is we're pretty smart guys. We'll, we'll figure, figure it, out. it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> And that's true until it's not, you know, that's true until these really smart bros, you know, get together and they, they've figured out how they're going to corner the market on X. And then you find out the realities of doing business in California, 
you know, a, a very employee friendly state or, right. you know, CEQA or, you know, some of the other things that uh, even smart people are kind of perplexed by. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me ask you this later. This is kind of a fun one. So when I say PR, I like to, I like to tell people I help them get in the news, stay out of the news or, or the, the, the game that I play really is I'm the good news guy. I got a product. I want to launch something. I want to tell you about it. Yeah. Public affairs. I always thought of them as the bad news guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tell I, me I, about I, your work. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the bad. I, I am. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you this story. I helped a uh, client one time with a really, really bad situation and like literally a life or death kind of situation. And we were able to, to kind of put that thing to rest. And, and as you often do, you build really good relationships, friendships. Um, you get close to people because you're in the trenches with them for a long time. So months go by and they have, a, they have a labor relations issue, a union issue. And they call me in, you know, can you come help us with this? I'm walking down the hall and the CEO sees me. And he said, what the hell are you doing here? He said, what have we done? You know, what have we done now? I said, no, right. no, it's not a crisis. It's just, you know, just a complicated situation I'm trying to help you guys through. So I'll willingly wear the uh, bad news, you know, the so, bad so, news hat. Yeah, I mean, like, all right, deep issue, serious issue. I don't know. Let's not think about what it is, Larry. But like, I want to know, like, how are you approaching these uh, in terms of the communication tools, right? Are you telling people to stay away from people? Are you telling them we need to do a press release, hide from media? Or you know what? You need to go do this instead as an event to build your reputation. What are you doing? The one universal truth is you got to make decisions. You know, mm. people get paralyzed in, in kind of crisis time. And, and it's understandable. I mean, it's, the, it's fight or flight. You know, the way our brains are wired, uh, most people don't willingly run into a burning building you know most of us are sensible enough to try and run away but what gets you through a tough situation like that is you have to make decisions and so one of the things that that i do and others in this world do is you get in there and you you are constantly putting decisions in front of your client you've got to make this decision you've got to speak about this you've got to start this strategy um because you know the world just moves way too fast now, and it's just too unforgiving that um, unless you make decisions, even without perfect knowledge, um, you know the crisis is going to eat you alive. And we've seen plenty of examples where companies see the leadership moment, the leadership opportunities that, that a crisis provides them, and takes them and does and does well, or at least mitigates its problems. So. Along the way, though, as they're making that decision, I imagine you're providing a lot of counsel for them to make that decision. Yes. Yeah. And to your question about like what kind of tools and that sort of thing. I mean, I oftentimes, you know, I you you have to have the skill set of playing in the sandbox with others, because oftentimes, you know, you're parachuting in and there's an existing communications team or there's another agency in there, you know, doing the day to day work. And I think we do pretty well of not threatening them, but saying, look, we, we're like a, a specialist doctor that you've called in to do one sort of thing. I'm never going to replace your personal position. But for this one issue, yeah, I'm pretty good at it. Let's work together. 
you know, I'm not here to threaten you. I'm here to learn from you. And, you know, let's, let's get this thing done. It's a collaborate yeah. collaboration. Well, you it know, it has to be. It's interesting. I, I'm working with, with a group of folks right now that are working on something pretty important. And I came in late and they were already doing lots of work on it. And I found that, you know, it, it was sort of a public affairs crisis kind of thing. I found that I had to tell them all to just slow down, mm -hmm. right? Just stop right now. You guys are going all over the place, right? Who's talking to who? Why are you talking to the media about this? Why are you disclosing that now? Right. Save that for later, <laughs> right? Re yeah, ready, fire, aim. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, 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 and it got me to thinking like, you know, this, it, a lot of communications, you know, is they, we had to think about it, right? And stop and see what would make the most impact. And in a crisis mode, you, you're moving a lot faster. Right. And there's rules to the game where you like are either stating something or getting the press or the media or the public uh, context of why something happened. Hopefully it's in your favor, but sometimes it's not. No. Larry, so you wrote down on here, we, we take notes before the call to see what we can talk about. And usually we throw the notes out the window <laughs> and we just start chatting. <laughs> well, on here it just blows my mind. I want you to talk about it. You said one of your fixations is why most apologies suck. Why what does that mean? Tell us what that <laughs> yeah. means. Well, how many turn? How many times have you heard a celebrity, a politician, a CEO offer a profound apology for something, and you just don't believe it? Yeah, all the right? time. All the time. And it, it kind of devalues the, the, the power of an apology, which can be an, a very powerful communications tool. You know, my view is not enough organizations look at apologies as a piece of strategic communication and, and analyze it the same way you would analyze any other high stakes decision or any other, any other high stakes communication initiative. So you have to ask yourself the question, all right, well, Am I at fault or am I not? Does this help my legal position or does it enhance legal jeopardy? What happens if I don't apologize? Yeah. You know, um, well, I think for the most part, I mean, a lot of these apologies and, uh, you know, I, I have to think about like some of the, some of the better examples, but they're half-assed apologies, right? They don't really, they, they're, they, most people apologize and they say things like, I, I'm sorry if what I did offended you. Yeah. That's instead of saying I'm, I'm apologizing, apology. yeah. Instead of saying I'm sorry for being offensive, those are two much different, you know, very different statements. So I yeah. think you're right. I, I think you know it, you have to if you're going to apologize, own the shit out of it. Yeah. You know, don't don't half-ass it because it it looks that way. And, and then by and by owning the shit out of it, that doesn't mean you keep apologizing you know, every hour on the hour. There is, I think, such a thing, uh, you can devalue the, the importance of something like that by continuing to, you know, it's like before I get started announcing our earnings, I really want to apologize for, you know, that explosion that we caused last week. It's like, you know, I think there's a way to do it and you're onto something, Kevin. You know, you do have to own it and you got to look at it the way the person who's hearing it is going to hear it. It's not about what you want to tell them. It's about what they need to hear. 
Yeah. And I, and I think sometimes I think this is where people get mixed up is people may not want an apology, but they may want an acknowledgement from you and acknowledging something bad that's happened. Mm-hmm. Maybe the only apology that you need. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I think people get confused with that sometimes. Right. You know, the building, the building blew up. Well, shit, it blew up. <laughs> well, you know, we acknowledge that building's ballooning up. We're going to work better to do it. There's no apology there. It's just like, you know, we kind of screwed up. You know what I think it is? I think, again, you gotta, you got to meet people where they already are, and you got to uh, get inside, inside their heads, you know. And, and as I say, you got to tell them what they need to hear or what they want to hear, not necessarily what you want to tell them. So I, it, when I give talks to, you know, uh, I was talking to a big food trade group not long ago. And, you know, I've worked on a lot of food safety, you know, food poisoning kind of issues. And I said, you know, the mistake you guys always make is somebody eats one of your products and they get sick or, or worse. And the very first thing you come out and say is your safety is our number one priority, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that sounds like you've proven that that's not true. Right. Right. <laughs> so why why know, say that? Yeah. When an airline has, you know, a, 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 a plane slides off the end of the runway, what do they say? Well, if your safety is our number one priority. Well, it, it was in the airline then the plane would still be on the on the uh, tarmac. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the but the point of apologies is, uh, you know, I think most people are they, they will kind of want to forgive you. And if you come out and say, hey, listen, I'm fucked up like this, this went badly and we're going to learn from this experience and that's the best that we can do. And, uh, we sure as hell hope it doesn't happen again. And fucking sorry, man, that, that was, we screwed up. I think if you do that, most people, if you say it like that, if you, if you're really genuine, most people go, all right, you know what, let's, let's give these guys, you know, let's give these guys another opportunity. And, and if you don't, you know, you may as well, you may as well save the apology. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm not apologizing for? Having Larry Kamer on our show. Thank oh, you for he's a great being kid. with us today. You know, Thank dude, you. like we got to have you back because there's more war stories that oh, I want to hear about. We haven't told any war stories. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, we're just kind of like doing this. So I think, uh, you know, when something new topical comes up, we'll bring you on board and see how you, well, you know. just just wait like seven minutes. There'll be another crisis. Like, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I said to you guys. It's like, that's why I love my work is because there's always new material. Yeah, well, you know, you got you got anything on Ukraine you can throw at us here? Like we got we got something brewing out there. Out of my pay grade, man. Yeah, okay. Out of your pay. All right, Larry. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. Thanks. Good to see you again. Always, man. Always. Now, Larry, you get to. <laughs> this is funny. You want to explain your outro song because guests get to do the outro song. Yeah. So uh, it's Leon Bridges. Bad, bad news because that is kind of the business I'm in. That's exactly what I'm saying. Us out, earlier, Leon. Yeah. Take, Take us care. out. Ain't got no riches, ain't got no money that runs long. But I got a heart that's strong. And a love is tall. Ain't got no name, ain't got no fancy education. But I can see right through. A powder face on a painted fool